I'm an accountant by background. I'm a banker by background. I worked in a legal field. All of that is risk averse. Yes. So I like to do things with certainty. So the more I can cross off on a checklist, the more certain my business is, the more certain my cash flow is. There's a slight myth, and let me frame it that there's a myth, that you can't remortgage a residential property within six months of either buying it or taking out a, a finance on it. That's actually a myth. Andrew, how do you go from being a banker to owning a bank? Well, that's a great question, Saj. I mean, yes, I did used to work in banking for quite a number of years at a senior level. But actually, I worked out I was more an entrepreneur and I was a star-shaped peg in a round hole and I didn't fit in a corporate life. So what I've done is worked out where my strengths are and property is one of those strengths and being an entrepreneur and running businesses and therefore I go around and buy banks now. There's loads of them for sale. If you haven't bought a bank, get out there and buy one now. <laughs> so explain a little bit more about what that means. There's a lot of uh, banks because the banks are shutting down right now. I'm just on the high street here. We've had, uh, I think, two close in the last yeah. year. Well, the, the one in uh, at the local town to me is about to shut as well. And the problem is COVID has changed the world. And there's also a, a drive to actually create digital currency. In other words, do away with the pound note in your pocket. Cool, aren't I old? I'm showing my age. <laughs> do you remember those days? I've got a stiff, I've got a one. Well, not a stiff, I've got one framed in the office. Yeah. <laughs> but... Because of the digitization and the encouragement to do everything online through apps, etc., and when you look at the footfall going into branches, it's nosedived off a cliff, and the cost of running branches is still the same. In fact, it's actually going up, it's rising. It costs around about three quarters of a million pounds to keep a branch open. Right. And that's not the staff cost. That is the insurances, the rates, the rent and everything else that they pay to keep these branches open. And it's just not cost economic for them to do so. And in this post-COVID world, it's not just banks that are closing. It's a complete reinvention of businesses and business ideas. So really, anything that can be done by Amazon or shipped online is, is likely to shut within the next three to five years. The banks themselves and uh, various research reports have said there's going to be 25,000 bank branches coming up for sale over the next three years. Wow. I have a schedule of banks closing this year. This is why we see a lot of more banks going into auction. Yeah. Bank buildings are going into auction. So probably because at the end of their leases, they're not going to renew. They'll they'll vacate totally. at that point. So totally. what's the opportunity there then? So we've talked about the high street is changing. Yeah. It's not like what it used to be. COVID's probably accelerated things that are already happening along this path anyway. So where's the opportunity then on the high street? Well, the opportunity is multiple. Um, where do banks base themselves? On the high street, where did they put themselves? On the prime bit of high street. So actually, generally speaking, the banks are in a damn good location. So they're relatively easy to relet to commercial tenants. And often very nice buildings. They are often beautiful buildings. That said, 
they're often fake. Um, most of the facade on a bank is fake. Okay. Um, I, I've bought a number, some of which are um, built in the 1800s yeah. and still are 1800s. And I've got a couple which were built in the 1800s. But actually, the facade is, still remains the 1800s, but everything behind it, 60 yeah. centimetres back, was remodelled in the 80s, concrete platforms and refs, yeah. similar to this building yeah. we're in now, yeah. where it's a modern construction with an old facade on. And sometimes they just stick cladding on the front to make so them look old. Make fronts. It says a lot yeah. about banks, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it absolutely does. And behind the scenes, when you get to go where the customer doesn't go, you often find out just how poorly maintained they are. Yeah. So, not they're not very efficient models. They and they lose money effectively having the retail side of banking. Yeah. and they they wanted to get out of the, the that area anyway. And of course, I've said COVID's accelerated it. So, what what are you doing with these type of buildings? You're looking at like banks and other yeah. type of commercial buildings at the moment. Well, I, I I do several things. One, I keep them as commercial. I find commercial tenants. If you put a when you buy a a, a vacant commercial building. It's valued based on its income stream. So a bit like a commercial HMO mortgage where you value it on the income stream. Because there's no income, the value comes down quite significantly. You find a tenant, all of a sudden it's based on the income stream that tenant is paying, so the value goes up. So tenanting those either on the ground floor or in commercial spaces or uppers is a great way of doing it. What I tend to find is ground floor we relet and we successfully do that. And I usually try and tie in good quality clients in there. And on the uppers, what we tend to do is convert them to residential. I look at buildings in a different way and with a different metric to what most people do. Most people will go, oh, that house is worth 100,000 on right move, and the one next door is 105. Mm -hmm. What you're not doing, you're comparing price and the fact it's on the same street. What I compare is pound per square foot of floor area. And the fact that that one's 105, but has got a large extension, it's cheaper pound per square foot. So you're getting more value for money. With commercial, the value and the cost per square foot, it, it can be as much as a tenth of the residential value. Right. So when you're buying the land cost so cheaply, the conversion cost, generally speaking, is a fixed cost per unit that you convert, you can buy your flats from anywhere from 30 to sort of 65,000 pound and buy a whole block of them at that price. You can't go on right move and Zoopla and find them unless you go very far up north. Yeah. So you're finding uh, the commercial space, which is not being used, for example, on the first floor. Yeah. Uh, and repurposing that into residential cost per unit, 30 to 65,000. And then you've got uh, now an apartment worth whatever they're worth on yeah. location. Yeah. Because they're, they're not micro apartments, they're full size, they meet uh, modern uh, building regs. All the space, uh, the lights, the sound, everything, you know, they, they are fully compliant properties that meet current building regs and current planning regs. So they'll also be sellable, mortgageable uh, as well? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, the smallest we build is 37 square meters, mm -hmm. and that's with a shower for a one person. That's very large space. Yeah, yeah. I mean, some of the micro studios that we've uh, we have done in the past. Yeah, <laughs> literally twenty square meters or less. So if you can get everything in twenty square yeah. meters, 
37 seems a luxury. Well, 20 square metres, the, the limit on that really was around the finance and the banks would allow something 20 square metres. The planners like 37, it's twice the space. Yeah. And they're quite opulent uh, places. We do them out and I always like to build to demand. So I basically have contracts with various councils and I build to fulfil a demand I have. I'm a, a, a sort of inverse property investor. Most investors go out, buy a building, yes. and then hopefully find a tenant. Yeah. I find the tenant, and then I go and get the buildings to fulfil right. the demand. So it's a reverse model of most people. It's interesting. So with the councillor, you is it social housing? Uh, that uh, um, It's housing homeless. Okay, yeah. There's always a demand for homeless, isn't there? Especially in... Uh, Recession. Yeah, well, wherever you are in the country, but in a recession, there's more people and more people are starting to struggle to pay the mortgage yes. and are becoming homeless. Yeah, it would certainly would increase the level of uh, homelessness without a doubt. Yeah, so my demand keeps wrong. growing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so talk to me about commercial property then. I mean, it's not something I've really ventured into. Mm. Um, I'm interested in learning more about it and certainly getting into it. Most of my friends that are involved in commercial keep saying to me what on earth are you doing residential you need to be coming over here to commercial where life is much easier yeah uh, and taking many more holidays as we were talking about earlier. <laughs> they are stuck in residential so uh well a couple of key benefits should we look at of yeah. commercial um I, I know you run hmos and you do serviced accommodation and the toilet gets blocked and your helpline gets a phone call saying help can you unblock the toilets you know we've got a problem with my commercial tenants, they unblock the toilet because they pay for, repair, and maintain everything on the building. They even go as far as insuring the building for me, so I don't even pay for the insurance. Yes. So what comes in the front door in rent stays in the pocket in rent, a par paying tax. Yes, will be referred to as a FRI lease, so That's right. the responsibilities are effectively the tenants. Yeah, that's all repairing and insuring lease. Yeah. Whereas the landlord in a residential would be responsible ordinarily for, for these things. For everything. So you don't have those, uh, they're, all, they're almost very little management. Yeah. And so there's little management, there's little cost. I love legislation, especially when it's stacked in my favour. Which isn't the case as a residential landlord. As a, as a residential landlord, the last statistic I heard was there was something like 184 bits of legislation you need to comply with. Commercial, it was the 1954 Landlord and Tenant Act. Hang on, how frequently did they update this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so the law is stacked in the landlord's favour. Yeah. So an example being, let's say, a non-payment of rent. As a residential landlord, if you've got a tenant that's not paying rent um, and they uh, either they're not able to or they don't want to pay rent, uh, you've got a bit of a challenge on your hands in terms of dealing mm. with that. How is that different than in commercial? In commercial, uh, we have the CRA recovery process, the commercial arrears recovery, and literally within 30 days, we can get the property back. Yeah. So you don't pay, we'll take it away. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it sounds like a... a well Not only that, we can go in and change the locks, and if there's goods in there, we can seize them as a lien to repay our rent. Yes. Which sounds crazy when you say it like that, because it's like unheard of. And so, oh, that happens. But I guess that's the reality. That's, that's the reality. It is. Yeah, yeah. And often you'll get a, a commercial tenant and um, th with large co corporate organisations, uh, especially when they restructure and move people around, 
sometimes they don't pay the bill because it slipped through the net. And it's good fun serving a notice on, you know, a, a major household name saying, we're taking you to court and we're seizing your goods. And you turn up at head office and serve a notice and they're like, huh? And they, they scramble like ants to try and solve the problem. <laughs> I'm guessing they get it sorted fairly quickly. Absolutely. Yeah. The money's in the bank by the afternoon. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, the, I suppose it can happen. It can slip through the... Uh, slip through the yeah, yeah. Earlier you mentioned about uh, the value of a commercial property. Uh, so it's based on the income, uh, which is what the tenant is paying. Yeah. It's a multiple of that. Yeah. Uh, and if there's no tenant in it, or it's uh, unoccupied when you're acquiring it, the value is not going to be zero because it's no income, but it'll yeah. be significantly lower. Yeah. So give me an idea of in terms of uh, multiples, what would be reasonable of type mm. of tenants? Well, let, let me give you a bit more data on that as well. Um, last week I was uh, chatting with a, a commercial surveyor. And to put another metric into this, just not to confuse it, but just to sort of show how the price of commercial is getting cheaper and rapidly cheaper. With each interest rate hike, the price of commercial property falls. Really? Wow. With each interest rate hike. Now, why does it fall? Commercial property is valued on a commercial metric, as I mentioned earlier. So if the interest rate is, uh, say, 4%, and it moves up to 4.5%, People who invest in commercial property generally are people who are parking cash because it's the nearest closest thing to a government bond yeah. without too much effort. So you're you're underwriting the strength, the financial strength of the business that you put in there. Now, if the interest... That's the, the tenant's ability to be able to maintain that. That's rent. right. Yeah. So if you said, is Costa Coffee going to be able to pay the rent... Yeah, I pretty much think so. We look at their turnover, we look at their accounts, and we go, right, they've turned over several billion. Yeah, I think they'll be able to afford to pay the rent this year because my rent is less than 0.01% of their rent roll. Yeah. So you, you're looking at the financial strength in the same way you would credit assess a residential tenant, but you're doing it more on corporate accounts, market intelligence. You can scan the market for press releases and understand where a business is going, but also use your gut feel yes. in terms of, I don't think that business is going to be around in five years. And you can literally observe and predict what's going to happen and decide if they're going to be a tenant or not. Yeah. So this is, this can be changes that happen in the market. Yeah. So your Woolworths, your Blockbusters, these are disappeared because they haven't kept up with the market. The I don't remember changing. them, sad. No. No, no, you must be a lot older than... We still have both on the high street here. You must be a lot older than me, Saj. <laughs> Sorry. I'm getting older, you're getting younger. That's what it is. Thank you. So with, uh, like, banks, for example, banks are closing. So this is where we talk about the gut feeling where the, the market might be changing, the environment might be changing. So we need to think about, is this business still going to be fit for purpose in five years? Correct. To give them a 10-year lease. Yeah, absolutely. And the the looking at the interest rates... And looking at the term of the lease, basically, as interest rates go up, the valuation methodology basically cranks up the risk rate on that business. And in other words, their profitability goes down slightly, but the value of that property goes down because the interest rate has risen. And in order to get a similar return, 
I can move over to a government bond where there's lower risk. Therefore, I need a risk premium on top of that. Now, commercial buildings are valued by taking the rent and dividing that to basically get um, a risk factor against it. So we talk about yields and you talk about yields in the residential marketplace. And let's say I was after a 7% yield on a tenant. If the uh, interest rate goes up, then the yield also correspondently needs to rise. Now, when you do that, the price of the building comes down. So you have to pay less for it in order to maintain that level of yield, which is why it's pushing the prices down. That's right. So prices are coming down 30 40% compared to residential, which is falling approximately 5 to 10% at the moment. So when you look at it like that, the margin you can make on converting, say, to residential at the moment is actually growing. Well, because you're paying even less per square foot for the building that you're acquiring. That's right. And then when we look at the process to make a flat, within 56 days, I have approval, or I can start building under deemed consent, to convert this to a residential property. With a planning permission, if I was a new build developer or if I was going for a planning permission, it could be eight weeks or it could be three years. Yes. Waiting. I've got certainty of time scale. So, so I'm in control of my business, not the planning control department yes. in control of mine. Yeah. I guess that's where a lot of uncertainty lies when you need to make a planning application. There's, It's not a scientific uh, formula that you follow and you know, I do this, this and this and I get this outcome. Uh, it's based on sometimes people's opinions as well on things. And so there's a lot of uncertainty with planning. So things have changed from uh, permitted uh, development uh, rights last year, especially around the commercial space. Yeah. So talk to me uh, about that and how the opportunities have now appeared that didn't yeah. exist, say, two years ago, three years ago. Well, the, the very simple thing with what I do is there is a checklist of items. Is, the, is it in contaminated land? Yes, no. It's an easy yes, no answer. Can I make this space 37 square meters? Is there an adequate amount of natural light? Is there a noisy neighbor? All of, all of the criterion, there's about a dozen of them, all of the criterion are yes, no's. Right. And if you can put the yeses in the boxes and prove the yeses, because that's the other thing people think, oh, well, it's fine, it passes. You also have to prove it. Then you know you can do what you want to do with certainty. Now, I like doing things with certainty. I'm an accountant by background. I'm a banker by background. I've worked in a legal field. All of that is risk averse. Yes. So I like to do things with certainty. So the more I can cross off on a checklist, the more certain my business is, the more certain my cash flow is. So it's looking at the building and thinking, actually, um, I could use permitted development rights to repurpose this building, yeah. meaning I don't have to go through the full planning process. And as long as I know I can meet this criteria, uh, which is your checklist, yeah. meaning you can acquire the building, you can be certain on your numbers, your conversion costs, you know what end values yeah. are, et cetera. Uh, and it's easier then to just crack on with that deal. Yeah. And generally speaking, to be more certain with the numbers, uh, residential houses, um, we've all bought them. 
and sometimes somebody's had a cowboy builder, shall I yes. describe it? <laughs> and that cowboy builder's bought some up, the household has covered it over with a poster or whatever, and you suddenly find it, and all of a sudden you've got... Can of worms. Can of worms. Yeah. With commercial buildings, the landlord dictates to the tenant that they must maintain the building to a certain standard. So the tenant generally is a business, and if you walk down the high street, let's pick Vodafone this time, your Vodafone store is generally well-maintained. You walk in there and you don't look at it and go, oh, there's a dodgy builder built that wall, it's all wonky. They want it to look great because it's their brand and representation. At the end of a lease, when the tenant moves out, bit like with residential where you can retain their deposit, you can charge them for dilapidations, i.e. the degradation of the building over time. Mm -hmm. So you can bring the building back into, so commercial buildings generally are in better condition than a residential. So my costs of doing anything as a springboard platform are more certain because everything is there. And then I have health and safety reports on the building, asbestos reports, electrical reports, all the things that as a residential landlord, you have to go and pay at your cost to do. I buy the building and I get that given to me. Yes. So with this type of uh, strategy, you've been doing this a little while now and it's... Uh, it's 2005. Cool. <laughs> yes. Conversions, these type of uh, yeah. buildings. So what sort of other projects have you been uh, involved in or what else do you have in the pipeline at the moment? Uh Commercial's pretty much my bag. It's the opportunity of the next three to five years. It's where the big money's going to be made. Um, and I say that not to get people go, oh, wow, the big money, you know, that's what I'm going to chase. If you understand it, it's where the de-risked money is and it's where you can quickly grow a portfolio at low risk. So to me, it's a very simple strategy. And it's very easy to finance this because the financing is in abundance out there for this type of project. Um, so so I do that and I also do the homeless as well. Yeah. Um, I have contracts like with a couple of councils. So I create my own flats. I offer them to the council and then they get taken off me and I get paid a regular income, which is above market rent. So I'm, it's a nice model there. Um, Got the margin on the bottom and I've got the margin on the top. Yes. You touched on financing of these type of uh, properties and conversions. So if a commercial building is vacant that you're looking at and you're going to repurpose it, change its use, maybe turn into mixed use, create some apartments. Yeah. How would the funding structure work on something like that? What would the funders be looking for? Yeah. I'm guessing they don't like the idea of an empty commercial building. Uh, they're less enamoured by an empty commercial building. Uh, what I tend to do is create, you create HMOs, houses of multiple occupation. I create commercial multiple occupation buildings. So it could be multiple commercial tenants or commercial and residential mixed. So that is my version of your HMO and it de-risks the commercial sites. It brings into uh, use defunct commercial space so in terms of the financing what the lenders are doing they will look at the covenant of any commercial tenant that is in there they will look at uh, the residential element and because mine is effectively on commercial contracts it's a commercial tenant 
and they will finance around the strength of the income stream and the strength of who's providing that income. If it was uh, a traditional flat uh, let on a single let AST, they'll look at the bricks and mortar value. They'll also look at the rental stream and they will make a judgment between bricks and mortar value and rental stream over which basically gives the best balanced scorecard result. Yes. But finance terms, you tend to find interest rates are uh, a, a basis point or two higher than a residential, but the risks and return are lower. 70% loan to value, you know, downwards is what you'd be looking at. So anything 50 to 70% depending on the lender you're choosing. Yes. So if you're creating a significant value by multiple units, multiple yeah. tenants, I'll probably take a development finance out on that sort of project and then refinance out the same as you would with a residential project. You'd take a bridge or development finance, create your finished product, tenant it. The day the tenant moves in, the value of providing can walk around if it's a coffee shop and go, cup of coffee here. Yep, it's working. I can value it as a coffee shop now. Okay. (laughs) And so the the remortgage aspect of it, that's essentially what we're just talking about now is... uh, would you say generally you can extract most of the money out on those projects because there's significant uplift or? Well, if I'm creating a flat at 30,000 and the flat in the area is 120,000. There's definitely some margin there. There's... <laughs> Do you yeah. think I could? Yeah, for sure. <laughs> yes. Uh, so it's really attracting yeah. your initial investment probably, yeah. uh, uh, and some cash as well. Yeah. Well, one of the things I really love about the finance and this is there's a slight myth and let me frame it that there's a myth that you can't remortgage a residential property within six months of either buying it or taking out a, a finance on it. That's actually a myth. It's a rule and a guidance note from the Bank of England and the Council of Mortgage yeah. Lenders to the lenders. It's only a guidance note. Yeah. It's not a, a law. So you can do it, and there are lenders who will. In the commercial market space, I can buy it today, tenant it tomorrow, and refinance it tomorrow, and extract all the money out tomorrow, because I've added value instantly, and the value is recognised there. Yes. So the the commercial lenders are taking a different approach to these things. They're thinking more about where uh, oh, where's the income going to come from? Yeah. If there's a tenant there with a secured lease and that income safe. Absolutely. And it, it it's more... What I've done as an accountant, which is risk analysis and assessing things um, based on probabilities. Yes. So it, it's a very different kettle of fish. I, I don't pamper to the whims of a tenant. Everything is based on a commercial set of uh, rules. Yeah. We call them service agreements and contracts with our commercial tenants and service agreements with our council. So. Mm. Everything is pre-written down. Everything is works in the nine to five. So you don't have somebody phone your evenings and weekends. <laughs> yeah, they're not there. And with the front-end purchase, you mentioned that would be development finance or a bridge of some sort you yeah. use to acquire. Or a creative strategy. I mean, the we've done four deals this month. Yeah. And we've put no money down. Okay. All of them, we, we've agreed. No, I... I like to fly aeroplanes and land them one at a time. And what we tend to do is agree the terms of a deal, 
get given the keys, get access to the property, and then work our magic to uplift the value. So on the day that we do the completion, the value's already uplifted. So we've cut out the bridging and development finance using the vendor's finance. Yes. So doing the work, the value add, whilst it's still in the vendor's ownership. Correct. So as you mentioned, at the point of completion, uh, then you can refinance pretty much instantly. Yeah. So you're you're doing a purchase and then effectively immediate remortgage. Yeah. At that point. That's it. Okay. So you know, purchase lease options, exchange delayed completions, they are so in vogue at the moment in the commercial market space because commercial landlords, the the are struggling to find buyers, so they will pretty much agree to any commercial terms that you can come up with. Because it's there isn't an abundant of buyers, for Correct. example, as you see often in the residential sector. Yeah. Um. So they have less choice, uh, and they'll be more open to flexible terms. Yeah. With you. Yeah. And I know you enjoy these types of strategies and like getting into the nitty gritty <laughs> detail. Tell me more about the 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 consulting work you're doing around uh, helping people convert commercial to residential. Yeah. Well, there's a number of areas that I help people. Um, People who've already got a commercial property, but they don't know how to maximize the value. Uh, what I do is I look at the building. Um, I was in one last week. It was a bank. And um, there's a basement and there's three safes within the basement. Actually, the, the basement itself is secured. Then there's alcoves built in, which are each secured with a vault door. And then inside each vault, there's another safe. So it's pretty secure. And well, what do you do with something like that today? Well, with, with that, um, believe it or not, safety deposit boxes yeah. are an incredibly popular strategy. So a lot of people are going, oh, what do I do with this? Now, I haven't done this myself, but I have seen a property where the safe was on the ground floor. And what they did was opened up all the ground floor and they actually opened up the safe and they used that as a meeting room. Oh, right. Okay. So <laughs> it is... That they can be used. Uh, I've got a friend who's recently bought a Lloyds Bank, and he's actually going to be using it uh, and putting in there X-ray machines, because the vault itself shields the rest of the building from the X-rays themselves. So that is going to be one of these cosmetic surgery places. Yes. So they do have alternate uses. You just have to think differently. Yes. You have to have a creative mind. I mean, I, I help clients with that. I help clients negotiate and find deals. And I also help clients um, develop them because I grew up on building sites from the age of three. And as a result, not only do I know the numbers, the finance, the legals, I also kn know and I'm practical with the hands on a site. Yes. And uh, as such, I can run through every facet of a building very quickly and very easily and make things work and the problem i see is so many people they might understand one element really well because that's their core strength but very few people can join all the dots together i mean quite a rare combination of skills yeah you're you're a rare person in that you actually understand a breadth of the property sector because you've been in it you've done it for such a long time not much phases you yeah there's there's always opportunities uh, as i said in in whatever whatever we're looking at yeah so andrew one of the things i really enjoy about what you do and, and watching and, and listen to you as well is 
your view on where you see the markets are, what's happening, yeah, how it's yeah. affecting the global markets, how it's affecting the property market. Yeah. So what sort of uh, research do you do to kind of collect this uh, data? Yeah, well, great question. I mean, uh, I, I'm the geek in the room. I read a lot of uh, detailed reports, lots of pages in those reports as well. Organisations like Goldman Sachs, HMRC, uh, the Bank of England, the Federal Reserve. I'll take lots of different research reports and I'll pick through, if Right Move have said something, are they making a political statement or is that a fact? Is it underpinned by data? And where is it going? Often you'll see headlines in newspapers and the headlines are making those because of a political agenda or to sell a newspaper. What I try and do is cut through all of that. Now, you asked the question, where do I see the markets going? That's a good question. The UK, we're an island. Unfortunately, as much as we like to think we're a global superpower, we are a tiny little dot on this planet. And if America catches a cold, then we catch a cold. If a tornado passes through America, we get the tailwind of the tornado over here. An example of what is happening in interest rates, shall we say, if you track back the last 25 years worth of interest rates and you map the USA and the UK, you will find point for point we have virtually moved identically for the last 25 years. Now, ironically, when America moves, we move after them. So you can almost predict where our interest rates are going to go by watching American interest rates. So that's one area that's really useful to track. Reading the Federal Reserve reports, and they're talking about a fairly significant recession impacting America in quarter three and four of this year because of the banking crisis. We've all seen... um, different banks having troubles. There's getting to be too many to start a list, but there's banks having troubles. That's now undermining confidence, which means they're reeling in their finance. I was talking to um, a a RICS director last week of a national firm, and he was confirming the banks of picking up the phone and saying to them, can you come and revalue our portfolios and assess our risk? Because every three months, Standard & Poor's, Moody's, reassess the credit rating of the banks so they've got to make sure they're on ball yes and if they're not knowing where the risks are in their book that's a bit scary so you can predict roughly what's going to happen my prediction is yes there's going to be a recession in america that is going to affect our trade their interest rates are a little bit higher than ours so ours are still going to nudge up a little bit more there's more financial pain to come in that when we look at, say, the five-year Sonia rates, which is the five-year interbank lending rates, for lending the money today and collecting it in one month's, one year's time, sorry, the rate is 4.183. That's telling me the rates are going to come down to be that, but the rates in the short term are going to go up. Yes. So we've still got probably an increase to happen. I, I, That's right. I think we're close to the ceiling in terms of where the rates are going to go. Yeah, I I wouldn't disagree with you. Probably two quarter percent increases, one at the next review and one probably in two to three months' time. Yeah. Subject to the caveat being what happens in America. It'll then 
taper off. And that's why that's happening. If you then look at the five-year money, it starts to begin with a three. So that is telling us between now and five years' time, rates are likely to drop slightly below 4%, but not hugely. When we look at 30-year money, it still starts with a three. Therefore, because the 30-year money is starting with a three, long-term, we're probably in the zone, yeah, you know, 3% to 5% where it's going to average over the long term. So if your deals don't stack on 5%, start worrying. Yeah, they need to. I, I remember when I first got involved in property 16, 17 years ago, at that time, when we're trying to assess whether a deal works or doesn't work, we would do calculations based on around 6%. Yeah. And it was the norm uh, at the time. And these sort of rates yeah. of, uh, you know, 1% or less are unheard of. Uh, yes. Change. But then we've been through a bubble over the last 10 years or so of exceptionally low interest rates. Whether you use mortgages or not, all this affects the market. It does. Uh, and those low rates have created this demand, these increases in, in prices. Yeah. So how do you think the the property prices will pan out over the next year or two? Yeah, I think residential, we're still likely to see a little bit of a softening in prices. Uh, this I've taken from what RICS, Royal Institute of Chartered Surveyors, are telling their members, and they come out and do the valuations. So they dictate what happens to the bank's lending policies. Therefore, that drives the market. So prices are likely to soften probably up to 5% from where it is now. The peak was August last year. We've already dropped just over 5%. I'm predicting a further up to 5% fall. With commercial, my area of speciality, that is going to keep falling for some time, on vacant properties particularly. And that's going to keep falling until interest rates fall. So until next year, prices are going to keep falling in commercial. That will then be linked with how deep a recession we might go into based upon the banking crisis. It'll also be based on what happens with interest rates and how businesses basically have their economic confidence. And I know later on today, I'm sharing some stuff about businesses globally, economic confidence. And that all filters into the pricing model for commercial. Sounds complicated, but I... It monitor it this through logical, osmosis. It makes logical sense. <laughs> yes. It's it's understanding that the we the market's not isolated to what's happening here in Birmingham, for example. Yeah. The global markets affect what will happen with property, demand, prices, yeah. interest rates, uh, and ultimately that impacts us in terms of investors and where we should actually You will get micro markets, don't get me wrong, you know. Um a, a major employer might come to a particular area and all of a sudden you'll see a spike in demand. I call it following the politics of the market. Uh, we've had budgets where they've created enterprise zones and what you see happening all of a sudden is the commercial and residential prices in those areas boost a little bit because there's going to be inward investment and that is going to create demand. So where do you see the assessment then before we, uh, before we wrap up? The, the What's your assessment of the opportunity over the next uh, couple of years? Where do you yeah. think will be the biggest opportunities? For me, um, anybody... You have a slightly biased answer. I, I have a slightly biased answer. I mean, yeah. no, I mean, who doesn't want to buy a building and get all their money out and be paid handsomely for owning that? 
I think everybody wants to put their hand up at that one. Therefore, buying the lowest cost real estate, and if we think about it, buying land technically is the cheapest, but when you buy some of the commercial buildings, and I, I can point to buildings locally, which are making seven flats and are required at £125,000, that's a very cheap land cost. Yes. We've already got the superstructure, we've got the foundations, we've got the roof, we've got the windows. What are we doing? Well, we're taking out what's there and we're putting some stud walls up. It's a very cheap way of creating flats. Finished dwellings. The flash to bank, 56 days for the planning approval. The fastest I've had done is nine days. Right. Now, I do run a planning and architectural design business, and we have a system and a methodology of getting these through that little bit faster. So nine days is my fastest. It takes approximately three months to six months, depending on the size of the building, to create these flats. If I was a new build developer, I can't get out of the ground. If I'm doing HMOs, generally speaking, it's three to six months to get my HMOs, probably a bit longer to get my license in. So it's about the same timescales, except I'm adding massive value. I mean, if I'm not creating one to 200% growth in the money put into the deal, I'm not interested. Now, that to me tells you a lot. I also want deals that don't suck my time because I like holidays. Yeah. I like a holiday every month. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> it stops me. Older you. <laughs> yeah, sorry. <laughs> but we've got to do that, haven't yeah. we? You know, we've got to live life and we've got to live our best life. And you commented earlier about the posts on my social channel. I put out an inspirational post every day, a quote with me in a different location in the world. It's what everybody wants to do, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And it lifts everybody's mood. Yes. What would you say is your, your favorite method for finding deals? Oh, that's a great one. Um, talking to other people. Yeah, yeah. Talking to yeah, other people in. comes, yields lots of fruit. Yes. Um, now, that could be at a networking event. It could be um, talking to agents who become friends. You go out to the races, you socialize with them. It could be talking uh, with fellow property investors who have got problems and don't know what to do with something, or it could be um, talking to somebody who's thrown up a deal as part of their path, but talking to people is, is the best way. There are tools out there to go and scrape the internet. You can use auctions. Uh, at the moment, auctions are a really, really great place to secure commercial deals. Um, in the last month, secured a deal where it was uh, it was significantly less than the guide price, massively less than the reserve, and we changed the terms on the auction contract as well. Okay, and that was purely purely because nobody understood what they were buying. Yes, if you understand what you're buying, you can make massive value. Yes. Less competition in that space. Correct. Yeah. Correct. And that that's what I love doing. Is, and, you know, auctions are going to be an area I will be focusing on a lot over the next 12 months because I predict a lot of people won't be able to understand or buy yeah. what they're looking at. Yeah. Andrew, it's always a pleasure spending time with you and, and Likewise. speaking with you. 
Uh, what's the best way for people to connect with you and reach out to you? What's your preferred method? Uh, hit me up on social media. Property with Andrew. It's quite a complicated one to remember. <laughs> Property with Andrew. Yeah. And you'll find me on all the major channels with that. YouTube's Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. <laughs> so, and I'll share a, an inspirational post with you every day if you stay tuned. So, Andrew, thank you so much. Sad. Pleasure. Likewise. Great one. Yeah. Thank you.